Hello, and welcome to the Painless Podcast. Chris Hartwood from Painless Networking here. And you may love networking, you may hate it, but you know you've got to figure it out. My suggestion? Check out our all-new website, www.painless.network. Set up a free profile and then simply and directly connect with other members to painlessly solve your problems. You can post or share jobs to hire someone, find an awesome job on there to get yourself hired, or vet and connect with a potential partner or vendor. Just head on over to the new painless.network today to take the pain out of networking. Why Painless Podcast? Well, there's a simple goal, connecting with good human beings good human beings in and around sports and event marketing, and not just sound bites from them, but conversations with these smart, interesting, and generous people who then share with us how and why they've reached the success they've had and how and why networking and mentoring have shaped their careers. All right, you heard a little phone ring there. That was our good friend and one of the original painless uh, dirty dozen, if you will, one of the original members, Mike Myers. We're working on a location for the early December holiday painless gathering. Stay tuned on your painless emails or at painless.network for that info. It's going to be coming out any moment now. All right, uh, long intro and an even longer pod than usual because our guest today has some amazing experiences to talk about. And thanks to those experiences, some un, uh, really terrific advice to share with all of us. John Murray's the guest. He's the founder of Chicago-based Arena Partners. Uh, some of the arena's recent work includes Chi-Town Rising, the NFL Draft, work with USA Rugby, and the America's Cup races that were held on Lake Michigan last summer. But it's also really a, his amazing story about how he got here. He talks about growing up in a single-parent home on the west side of Chicago where they survived off food stamps and his mom basically not around because she had to work uh, two or three jobs at a time to keep him and his siblings fed and uh, sheltered. John, uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't want to give too much away. We got to get going on this thing to listen. But the guy scored a 34 on his ACT and didn't care about high school, didn't have anybody to, you know, give him an example of, uh, of how to make it work. He barely graduated and then found himself in a, as he said, a downward spiral to jail or worse. He ends up at the Marines, turning his life around, becomes an airline mechanic, goes back to school, becomes a teacher and a pilot, gets his MBA ends up at McKinsey and Company, and uh, became, through that, the chief bid officer at Chicago 2016. Talks about taking the devastating bid loss and <laughs> how he survived being asked every single day for more than a year of why, what happened? And he turned that into a positive, including the bid legacies of the Chicago Sports Commission and the World Sport Chicago, as well as forming arena partners. Uh, one more thing. Thanks to the folks at Soho House Chicago, their second floor chicken shop, for hosting us. You can hear the staff prepping uh, slash chopping up some of their tasty rotisserie chickens slash uh, clanging table and uh, silverware settings for that uh, evening's dinner crowd. So let's go back to uh, November 2nd and get connected with John Murray. From Chicago's West Loop at the beautiful Soho House, let's welcome to today's Painless Podcast, episode 35. John Murray, welcome aboard. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. But let's start with what you're currently doing, and then we'll take a look back. What's uh, Arena Partners, your role there? Tell us a little bit about that. Arena Partners is a strategy and marketing firm that's just about three years old. We started uh, coincidentally, not coincidentally, uh, on the fifth anniversary of the decision to award the Olympic Games to Rio. Um, and I wanted to mark what many see as a sad occasion uh, uh, with what I see it as is a, a real positive in terms of the legacy we left. And um, so I chose that date, uh, October 2nd, 2014, the fifth anniversary to launch Arena Partners. And uh, like I said, entering our uh, fourth year of um, operation. Now, when you started Arena, so four years ago, is it, uh, what was it with partners? Were you hanging, essentially, you're single on your own? How did you, uh, the initial, did you have some business basically lined up or hopefully lined up in the near future? Or were you taking a total flyer? Uh, it was a little bit of a planned flyer, I would say, right? So uh, as a former pilot, <laughs> I had a flight plan, but you mm-hmm. never know what the weather's going to be like. And um, uh, I had decided about a year in advance of that, that I wanted to um, go into business for myself. Um, I, I had an entrepreneurial spirit my entire life, um, and so it, 
it wasn't a surprise, I don't think, to a lot of folks, but I, I wanted to have a little bit more control over the clients I served, the type of work I did, and the people I worked with. And so um, Arena Partners, uh, the name came from the, the Teddy Roosevelt uh, quote about the man in the arena, which has always been a, uh, a little bit of a philosopher's stone for me in terms of how right. I make my decisions. And I had a, a loose affiliation of, of partners uh, that I work with um, uh, versus ha- being a true partnership in, 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 in form. Um, and that's, that's continued. We, you know, we now have you know, six full-time employees, but we also have uh, two uh, outside advisor partners that are part of Arena Partners you know, in a formal way, um, but aren't necessarily working full-time on projects with us. Uh, they come in as expertise is needed. And then we have great relationships with a number of folks uh, in the creative and, and events fields that can help us uh, and partner with us on a project-by-project basis, depending on where things go. Well, that's, that's the way the industry has really, uh, I would say, pivoted, to use maybe an overused term, but in that of partnering and outsourcing, but not always under the same umbrella, that you've got people to tap that do event production or, or the, particularly the social media elements or the television elements or you know, stage build or what, whatever those things. It doesn't make sense, uh, and you're not as nimble then if you've got all those people on the payroll all the time. So that's how it is that how you would look at no, it? That's absolutely right. It's, it, one is it's not as nimble. And two, I think, as I said, my, my intent from the beginning was to focus solely on projects that I really felt a passion for, with clients I felt a passion for, and with colleagues working with that I wanted to actually work with. And, um, you know, I came from uh, my most previous uh, role was as a global managing director at Accenture. And even in a leadership role there, 350,000 employees globally, um, it's a machine and, and it's very hard, no matter how senior you are, to really totally control who you serve, who you work with. Um, and, and, and a lot of times you can't control the output as a result. And so I wanted to do that. So the partners that, that we work with on a, uh, you know, either a one-off basis or on a regular recurring basis are people who share a common sensibility and a, a, a serious passion for wanting to work with clients that we care about and, and want to have fun while they're working and not just see it as a job, they have to see it as a passion. What's the, there's probably the, maybe the best well-known for Chicago folks, most visible thing, because it's, it's all over the place, uh, actually coming up very soon, the Chi-Town Rising event, you're involved with that. What's, are there any other good examples uh, right now that you throw out, uh, not necessarily even case studies, but just client examples of some other work that people might be familiar with of what Arena Partners has been involved with? Sure. It's varied. And so um, we, you know, there's always an underlying of of growth strategy. Um, But, you know, that term growth strategy can can be skewed a lot of different ways. And I'll give you you a couple different examples, right? So in in the example you raised of Chi-Town Rising, that came out of a, a strategy, a pro bono strategy we were working on with the Convention and Tourism Bureau to Chicago and the city of Chicago on how to drive winter tourism and how to market Chicago as a winter destination. And the strategy to grow that market was create a real tent pole event that would showcase the city outside of Chicago through a national TV audience, through a global media audience, and make people think differently about what Chicago is as a destination, not just a summer destination, but also as a winter destination. And so the proof point in that strategy was seeing the rise in visitation, the economic impact, the hotel room demand going up, the average daily rate for hotels going up, all driven by that. You know, and, and the ancillary points were things like being named to Condé Nast and National Geographic and Wall Street Journal's top 10 destinations for winter for the first time for the city and, and then tar- you know, calling out um, the New Year's Eve event as, as, as a reason for that. And so um, that's a great example of sort of a strategy that took on a life of its own. And we ended up having to you know, really delve deeply into production and, 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 and ownership of that to, to bring that strategy to fruition. You know, a, a simpler example, a more removed example, I would say, is the NFL draft, right? So the NFL draft, obviously established property, 50 years um, right. old, uh, had a life of its own. But the NFL was looking to do something very different. And they were not only leaving New York, which was a change for many people, but they were changing the whole format with this right. family fest and everything. And so um, they needed, 
in order to grow, they wanted to grow their market. So the growth strategy there was around how do we get, at the time, 50,000 was what they targeted. How do we get 50,000 people to come down to Grant Park during the draft and be part of the family fest rather than just the five to 10,000 people that typically come and sit inside a theater to watch the, the draw action. And so crafting um, a strategy and managing the out-of-home placement, the building lightings, the projections, mm-hmm. the other things that we could do in order to educate people that is coming to Chicago in the first place to tell them there's it was open to everybody, it was a really exciting thing to do, and then invite them to come down. Um, th- that was a strategy we put in place we operationalized it by managing the, the out-of-home uh, inventory, managing uh, the building lighting and the, and the other things. And then, the, the, you know, the net result was four, four times the uh, number of people. We hit 200,000 people, yeah. you know, which was great. And then well, they brought it back, obviously. And and that was really, re- that was early days for Arena Partners, mm-hmm. right? So, so um, uh, we we weren't doing a lot of event act, uh, brand activation and event production. We've expanded our capabilities um, a lot since then. Obviously, with Chi Town Rising, um, uh, with with the Arena Club and the the hos- corporate hospitality and events um, that we do at both the Soldier Field and, mm-hmm. and, and in other cities, um, uh, we've really expanded that because we've seen a real desire for for event production and brand activation that doesn't just uh, doesn't just expand on um, what the brand and, and get a lot of touch points, but actually uh, lives up to the brand's identity, uh, authenticity, mm-hmm. and, and and gives people uh, an experience that they want to take home with them. Right. So it's all about trying to drive additional ROI for right. the for the clients. Right. So that's the partners element is partnering with, not just being a partner with the city and choose Chicago and NFL, but other companies like C3 from Austin and working and, and making this all come together flawlessly. So let's go back to what the heck has shaped uh, shaped this uh, this guy sitting across from me. And uh, it's, it's an interesting story. I think, uh, um, I don't know if we'll have enough time to probably talk through all of it because you've, you've lived almost, you know, you're like a, a cat with nine lives or something of different versions of you that it didn't take the traditional path. It wasn't somebody you went to off from high school to college and got your accounting or business degree and went to work for a consulting or accounting firm at all. Tell us a little bit about your, you know, I guess you'd have to go back to high school and then post high school. What did you, what did you do and how did you end up there as an 18 year old kid? I'd, I'd, I'd like to say there was a, there's a plan. Um, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is, and, and I, I think it's, I'm on the record with this, so it's not something I talk about a lot, but I am on the record that, you know, I, I grew up, my dad was gone by the time I was five, um, so my mom, you know, raised us on her own. Um, bad neighborhood, west side of Chicago, didn't have a great, you know, childhood, didn't expect much, didn't think about high school, didn't think about college, mm-hmm. certainly didn't think about college. Um, so there was no plan. There was no discipline. There was no... Uh, mentorship or father figure. There was just, you know, existence. And, and did you have you had siblings too? I have two older siblings. Two older. So you're the yeah. you're the baby, right? So but so yeah. that was all. You guys kind of had to come together to make yeah. it, for lack of a better no, term, right? Exactly. You know, and 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 you know, and um, we were you know we, we were we were on food stamps, and 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 my mom worked three jobs. So she was wow. working o- almost. All the time, she worked weekends and nights, and and so we didn't really see her much. And and the experience was for me, um, the net result was that being the youngest, um, I I I sort of just spun off, you know. Uh-huh. And I was, and I was not a good kid. I would I, I, you know, I would just say I, I was I was a, a troublemaker, and and I, and I was I had a chip on my shoulder, and 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 um, and I didn't feel like I fit in, and I didn't have the opportunity. To get into any programs, you know, I, I didn't, hmm. I couldn't get into organized sports. We moved every oh, wow. year, every year to two years, um, to a different apartment as we got yeah. kicked out or, or right. we had to move, and it changed schools and in all that. There, there was never any stability for organized sports. I, I, I realize now how important mm-hmm. that could have been because mm-hmm. I got that, I got that discipline and I got that rigor uh, and mentorship in the Marine Corps, and that changed things. And and now, you know, the reason I'm so passionate about programs. Like some of the nonprofits I work, like World Sports Chicago, oh. is because these programs that are out in the community, helping kids, giving them those opportunities now, are so important. Because it's not just about the discipline; 
um, and the organization, but it's just it's the, the stability that you get of knowing something's there for you. Mm-hmm. Instead of, I mean, there's nothing worse for a, a young boy, especially, to, than idle time, you know. And and <laughs> and so, um, so yeah. So so high school was was interesting for me. I, I had trouble. I you know I was I was always a very capable student. Who tested well? Right, you know, like thirty-four on my ACT. When you applied but, yourself, but, but, you got a thirty-four, 34 ACT, despite but, the, but, all these but, challenges. But a C minus average. Yeah. So there was no. I never thought about high school. There was. I mean, I never thought about college. There was no plan wow. to go to college. Uh-huh. There was no nothing. There was just. There was just sort of the next opportunity, you know. And so I walked out when I got to high school. And my mom, uh, my father had died. Uh, he was estranged from us, but he died. And my mom finally got Social Security benefits. And when she did, she used those to put me in Notre Dame High School in Niles mm-hmm. and I went there for three and a half years again we had a middling relationship the school <laughs> and I and um and I ended up you know walking out of there uh you know four months shy of graduation wow and without any regrets because I never thought it would impact me because I had mm-hmm. no place to go to college right and I had been working since I was 14 at a variety of jobs and, and by the time I was 17 I had I was I wasn't living at home anymore by the time I was 17, oh, I, was, really? I was living um, downtown, uh, well, not downtown, on the north side on Broadway uh, by the Aragon Theater uh, in a little rat-infested apartment. Yeah, that's and, uh, um, not a pleasant place and in I, the And I was mid-80s. working, and I would, I would you know, I would uh, uh, every day leave school at 2.30 in the afternoon and, and go right to work and work all night. And so I wasn't, I didn't see value in school. And, and, as a, and, and as a consequence, I don't think they saw value in me. And I think mm-hmm. that's, a, I, I don't blame them for that. I don't, I don't, I don't think the system failed me. I just think that's there was no infrastructure for me at that right, time. Right. And so, um, and, and that's what the Marine Corps gave me. When I ended up in the Marine Corps, which again was not something that was a plan, that was, you know, in all honesty, it, it, that was a, sort of a forced situation for me. And um, it was my rock bottom. And I, I was not going to, I was going to end up in jail or... Uh, or worse, if I didn't do something, mm. and um, I went in the Marine Corps and benefited from those that good testing ability because um, I was able to um, uh, to do really really well uh, on on my ASVAB test and then on uh, on the ability test once I was in. And so uh, once I got in there and I and the discipline uh, was applied. And I realized the value of meritocracy, and and I and I saw people from every walk of life, you know, people who grew up, uh, you know, in rich families, uh, stable families, with good educations, um, people that were dirt poor and grew up in Arkansas, and 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 didn't have anything, um, and all of us were treated equally, and all of us were uh, recognized based on our abilities, and all of us shined in that environment, and when I saw that I could compete, not only compete but thrive, it gave me tons of confidence and respect um, uh, and a sense of team that I never had in my life. And as a result, um, I just exploded. I, 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 I you know, went through a nine-month uh, basically electrical engineering training program, avionics program uh, on aircraft, military aircraft, um, and you know, graduated top of my class, uh, perfect scores and everything, and, and was, got an award for that. And as part of that, was uh, asked to join the helicopter squadron that flies the president in Quantico, Virginia. So I was supposed to go, I was supposed to stay in California and as a Chicago kid signing up for the Marine Corps yeah. in wintertime. I was thinking, I just want to go someplace warm. <laughs> um, uh, but thank God, they, you know, they, they, they saw something in me mm-hmm. and they gave me a chance and, they, and then they recruited me to go to, uh, to Quantico and, it, you know, and, you know, traveling with Marine One, working with a, you know, the, the really, uh, elite group of Marines that were in that squadron and, and, and making friendships. My best friend to this day um, is someone I met there. And, mm-hmm. and you know, those relationships and those friendships and, and, and the experiences there uh, cemented in me a sense of confidence and a sense of ability and a sense of commitment uh, and responsibility that I never had before. And so um, I, I credit almost every success I've had in my life to, to those days and, and that you know, that fateful night when I, you know, stepped on those yellow footprints um, <laughs> at, at the recruit depot and, and started my, my basic training because that, that's really uh, when my life went from a downward spiral to uh, an upward trajectory. That was mid-late 80s, so it was like Reagan and, and Bush as presidents. So and I got there just as, just as Reagan was, uh, was, was leaving. Uh, I, I went to the Marine Corps in, in 1986 and uh, went to Quantico in 87. Um, 
and then George uh, Herbert Walker Bush came in uh, uh, to office, you know, shortly after that. So I, I spent uh, most of my time at HMX when he was in office, mm-hmm. and it, it, it was a cool place to be because it's you know the the flashy piece of it is you know flying the president and being the uh, the helicopter squadron that travels with him. And some of those trips were fantastic, and I got to travel all over, which was, you know, a great experience. But also, you know, one of the things I really liked about it was that it, it does all the operational tests and evaluation for Navy and Marine Corps aircraft, um, helicopters. And, wow. and so, you know, we were testing everything from, um, you know, high-altitude flying in, in non-pressurized aircraft to uh, uh, early versions of GPS. You know, you think about... Everyone takes it for granted now. Yeah, right. GPS, but back <laughs> back in the '80s, you know, GPS was relatively novel and new. But we also had the three-quarter scale mock-up of the uh, the Osprey, so that was be- the oh, the geez. tilt-wing uh, helicopter airplane that the Marine Corps has now. And, and, and you know, uh, it was just a great great experience, a great place to be around. Did, did you were you seeing it at that time? Uh, this anywhere close to this clearly of the that change that it brought on you, or was it more? You look back later and saw that, and just like, oh, okay, this is cool. I can do this, and yeah, I, mean, I think like so many things in life, it's it's um it's always clearer in hindsight. Um, at the time, my focus was really on trying to make sure that I did as good a job as I could and, mm-hmm. and, and, and took in every experience. And so, uh, I, I definitely realized I was enjoying it and I was loving it. And, and it and I I I started to sense a desire for something more and something higher. As the, as the belief in my abilities became cemented and my confidence grew, I realized I want to go to school. Um, I, w- I don't want to... I, I, I want to do more than just the Marine Corps. I want to do more than just what I, whatever I was going to do before the Marine Corps. And so I started taking some college classes. Now, I still I still went out and I didn't go to school right after. I, I went to work for Delta Airlines as a mechanic. And, and that was really... That was my first... I, I think test of uh, practicality versus vision mm-hmm. and, and dreaming. You know, I, I had never known anyone in my entire life that had made fifty thousand dollars. Right? That was like that was. Yeah. I remember thinking fifty thousand dollars was an amazing amount uh-huh. of money. Like that made you rich in oh, my yeah. mind. Uh-huh. And so, and and it was obviously fifty thousand dollars was more then than it is now. But it wasn't that much. It, you know, it, it was it was a little bit of just never seeing anyone with money. Uh-huh. And I was you know offered a a job as a, as a mechanic at Delta, out of the Marine Corps that started me above $50,000 and I just couldn't fathom it. Yeah. And, and there was no way I could say no to that. And, and so I, I took it and I, and I went down to Atlanta uh, and then I got transferred back up to Washington, D.C. So I was actually with my buddies up from Quantico. Um, and I really enjoyed working on the planes and, 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 and the pay was great, the benefits were great. But I also, I, I found myself realizing, you know, I don't. I was looking at the other people, and, and I was thinking, I don't know if I want to be turning wrenches when I'm 50 years old. I, I, there's, I want something more. And, and again, this was this this dawning sense of there's more out there, and I I have the capability to go after it. So I, I I'm I'm almost uh, uh, you know culpable if if I don't go after it. And so um, so I decided to go back to school, and and after a year at Delta. I moved back to Chicago and, and started um, started school first at University of Illinois Chicago and then went downstate to to U of I. And I mean, I think it's kind of a I think it's kind of an important point though. We talked about the path or something, and and I know a lot of people listening, younger people that's just out of school or in school or something, the feeling that they have to make they have to have all that stuff mapped out at that point. It doesn't have to be. I think it's 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 smart to be looking forward and trying to figure it out. But I like to make the point, and, and your story is a perfect example of that, of then seeing, okay, what are you interested in and what are you good at? And then following that, that's the path. And then seeing the of the interesting, fun, exciting, passion, combining those things. Then you go and follow that, and that then leads you if you keep working hard and right. I think that's exactly right. I, I you know, wh- when I'm talking with folks, whether they're young or old, anyone that's considering a career change or just thinking, you know, reflecting on life, I always say the same thing, which is try to make no regrets moves. Try, you know, you, you don't always need to know where you're going. D- direction is helpful. So if if you know you have an interest in sports, if you know you have an interest in marketing or entertainment or events, then then try to find opportunities around that. But don't if you sit and wait for the perfect opportunity to come along, a million great opportunities are going to pass you up. 
and, and the perfect one might not, never come along. And so my encouragement is always to try, try not to say no and try to see the opportunity in everything. And it doesn't mean you have to change your job or move to another state. There's always opportunities. And if you're willing to, to invest in it, and I'm always shocked by people who they treat a job change, which is potentially the largest decision in your life. I mean, it can really impact everything. Um, and they treat it sort of happens with happenstance. You know, sort of throw together a resume. It's the same resume for every <laughs> employer that they apply to. They, they go and they have a bunch of conversations. But in the end... Um, they're not really applying the rigor to it. They would sometimes to pick out a pair of shoes mm-hmm. or or a stereo or, or or a car for God's sakes. You know, you know, in terms of the amount of research and understanding they do, and and really, is the fit right? And that's maybe for three or four or five years for a car. Um, the you know the right the right job, the right career is going to take your your entire life. And so, it's fascinating to me that that people don't put more more rigor into it. And, and my advice is always is, you know, take every chance you have to get a new opportunity to get more experience, take it, go out there, um, volunteer, you know, don't worry about pay, uh, worry about experience, worry about the network you can build, the, the, the relationships you can build and, and, and put those experiences under your belt. Cause that's way more valuable than, um, uh, than a, than a bigger paycheck. Um, and, it's it's the people that go into it with the attitude of I just want to be part of this and I want to make it work and and I want to get the experience that in my mind always end up making more money because those people that come in my in my case or my employees people that become the most valuable the people that make the most money the people that last um, are the ones that have the attitude of I'm going to work hard I'm going to put myself into it and I'm doing it first and foremost for me because I want to get the experience and I want to, uh, and I want to do it, but also because I have, I have, I have the, the, uh, you know, the commitment to doing a job well and doing a job right. And, and if, if you do that, everything else takes care of itself. That's the other part of the path that I found is there's a, there's a anxiety for a lot of folks of, if I pick this one, then I can never go back either. You know, if you don't try it, and it does, otherwise you're checking everything off you do that you're researching like, boy, this really sounds like it now. This means I can't maybe do this in a few years. Well, who knows? Yeah, it's, it, it, that's less and less true now, right? I mean, it's, certainly when we were kids, it was, you know, sort of if you had more than three jobs in your life, there was something wrong. You know, now I think it's, it, it, there is, it, it's losing all, you know, all, all stigma. And in fact, a lot of people see it as beneficial because it's, it's, it's about experience, mm-hmm. you know? Same thing with travel. I, there, there, there's literally no one unless you know unless kids are in the mix, or 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 your job is just so good that it's not worth taking a risk. Uh, typically, anybody that comes to me and says I have this opportunity to go for six months or a year and travel or do this experience, and almost always I say yes because I've ne- you know I, I've been probably in 30 countries now in my life, and um, and all of it happened after the Marine Corps. Right. Until that point, I'd never been able to, could barely afford to get across the state line. And so that experience of getting out there and seeing the world yeah. is, is so beneficial in opening up your eyes to what's out there. And it helps you. People, you know, people say it's, it's, it's about better understanding other cultures. It's really about better understanding your capabilities and, and, and being able to solve problems and add value to everything you're doing in life because you've got a broader understanding of how the world works and yeah. I, I, and it's so taking I'm, applications from something else like it doesn't have to have a direct relation to it necessarily like you said your travel it teaches you how to get over communication hurdles if some of you don't even speak the same language or whatever and you figure out how to connect with people in new ways you know it doesn't always have to be somebody who doesn't speak english that you run into to apply that to it can be somebody who speaks english very well but you're in a new business presentation and you've got this way of of breaking the ice or you know finding a way to connect and it, that's priceless to be able to to do that and that wouldn't have come if you hadn't have gone to turkey by yourself and <laughs> exactly. it out right? let, me, let me take it right back to that you know into to the austin neighborhood on the west side when you know for a young john murray who's out there who his entire world is you know a radius of three blocks mm-hmm. which are all dangerous to walk down and and being scared all the time and not knowing anybody certainly no one that I could think to who could help me do anything that was legal uh, you know it, right. there, there was no there was no one that could help me do something better or do you know maybe a priest right outside of that 
my world was so constrained. And I think that um, what you come to realize in life is that everything happens because of the relationships you make, whether you whether it's you know intended or unintended. Those experiences, friendships, contacts, understandings that you make lead you down the path that, that gives you experience. And so, building out those nodes in your network mm-hmm. um, is is the most important thing. And again, going back to the programs, the nonprofit programs, you know, giving those kids um, the ability to see what other people, uh, that other people exist and that there's other paths out and there's opportunities, but also getting to know somebody and saying, oh, I met this kid, he's amazing, he's really interested in this, and I know that Bob, who's got a shop that is looking for summer help, could use somebody, and he'd be great because Bob's an incredible human being to be around and, and three months with that guy is going to change this kid's whole trajectory. And, and that's, that's a network that happens, you know, only, only to, only if you have two things in place, one, a program that allows those connections to be made. And two, people getting these kids into the programs by telling them how great it is, telling their parents how great it is yeah. and, and giving them that opportunity. And, and if you could bring those two together, you know, at that point it's left to, to, to a little bit to fate and a lot to human spirit. And the fact that there's a lot of good people out there that want to help. What do you think of like, what what would the the kid who walked out of of N- Niles Notre Dame saying screw this right before just within grasp of graduating what would that, what would that guy think of you know sitting across the table from you right now would, do you think you could even comprehend that because you t- and I don't mean to over dramatize no, it question. but I, because like thinking of exactly what you said that you you were coming from this small radius of a world to 30 countries and working on the president's helicopter and working on the Olympic bid and owning your own business now. And yeah, I think, I think most likely that kid would have said, yeah, yeah, I hear you. That doesn't work for me. Uh-huh. It'll never happen for me, but I, 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 I believe you're sincere in it, but it's not going to happen for me. I, I was never, I was never cynical about other people's intent. I was, uh, I guess, skeptical of the, of whether or not it would ever you know, shine down on right. me and whether or not I had the capability. I was skeptical more than anything of my own capabilities. And I didn't believe that I had what it took to, huh. to make it because why would I? No one's ever, no one ever told me. Well, right. <laughs> I well, was good at something. Maybe didn't have because of your circumstance and your mom not even necessarily being around to even boost you up that you weren't seeing success stories. So maybe that's part of it. You got in the Marine Corps and you're seeing the meritocracy that it was like, oh, if I work, I can actually get recognized and, and move ahead and... Exactly. You hadn't seen that before. That is a great story, but it doesn't end there because you ended up, you, you finished up, you got your degree from, from Illinois, and then you went on to get your master's from Illinois. And I think in there was that, did you, you taught flight at flight school to, as a job and getting through school or something like that? Yeah, or am so, I reading so, that right? No, that's right. So, so you know, the, the state had a great program for veterans, one of the few states in the country that, that, w- that pays for your education at a state institution if you serve active duty in the military. And so um, I, you know, I, I could have, I was actually accepted to Georgetown, um, but decided to go to U of I in Champaign because... Because uh, it's the best school in the land. Yeah, no, because sorry, it, it's an alum, yes, sorry. Well, <laughs> no, I will sorry. always support the Illini, right? So, so it, but it was, it's, it was a good school for sure, right? It wasn't, it wasn't you know, what I would consider a bad school in any sense. And at the same time, it was free, and then add on to that the fact that they would pay for all of the flight fees for me to get my, my pilot's ratings. And so oh, I didn't wow. want to necessarily be a pilot for a living, but I was certainly interested in, in, in getting my license. And, and then once I got into it, I really enjoyed it. I really loved teaching, right? And so became a commercial pilot, got all my ratings, um, uh, and then started teaching and, and teaching for the university. And, and it was just fantastic. I really loved it. It doesn't pay at all. We <laughs> talked earlier about what I was making as a as a mechanic. I was, I think, it's about seventeen thousand dollars a year as a pilot, as a flight instructor, <laughs> working six days a week. Because um, you fly on Saturdays at two down there, and and and, um, but I really enjoyed it, and I thought about going to um, the airlines, um, and I flew charter for a while, uh, and what I realized was that uh, I'm not made out for for jobs that are repetitive 
or um, or stationary. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so um, I love it. You know, I love the experience of, of teaching because the students are always finding new and unique ways to try to kill you um, <laughs> in the airplane, and that keeps you on your toes and it keeps it exciting. But um, it's it's less so when you're uh, the higher up you get. In fact, that's the the, the, the weird um, uh, reverse effect, right? Is the the, the higher elevated you become as a pilot and the more pay you earn the less you actually work both in terms of number of days but also the less you work when you're in the plane yeah. i mean these planes have auto you know auto takeoff auto auto uh cruise land you know everything so, so even auto braking and so um it gets to a point where you're not doing much at all and that would be that would not be a good environment you would not be a happy passenger if i was in the <laughs> cockpit because i'd be too bored I'd, i might cause trouble so um Coming on the overhead. Yeah, this is your captain speaking. Uh, we're going to shake things up here this afternoon. I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> and so I'm not sure if I would say anything. Maybe I would just say, I mean, that, was, that was turbulence. The next time you hit turbulence, question, question whether you actually hit turbulence. So One of those guys. I still have a lot of pilots that are friends. I have a lot of friends that are pilots. And, um, I wonder sometimes what they're doing up there. The, the, um, uh, so I decided to go back to school and get my master's degree. And and the university made me a fantastic offer, which was, hey, if you go, if you get your MBA here, we'll let you keep teaching. And I was a designated examiner for the FAA, so at the time I, I could oh, sign wow. people off, so you could fly with me and get your your pilot's license. Um, and and that was valuable to them because not all the instructors have those ratings, and so they um, they said, you know, we'll pay you a salary to teach and. We'll pay for your tuition. Oh my goodness! If if you go here versus going to a, a a better business school, and and I said great because I wasn't looking. I wasn't thinking I was going to go applying to you know GE or something out of graduation. I was thinking I was going to. I've always been entrepreneur. I was thinking I was going to start my own charter oh, you business were or thinking something. That I was back thinking, well, then. Yeah, I was thinking okay. I know how to fix planes. I know how to fly planes. I'd like to learn more about business and maybe maybe I'll run a small charter operation or something. You know, it's just sort of still. Uh-huh figuring it out, but I knew I wanted to do something and, and I wanted to get some skills and I knew that, uh, having an MBA would never hurt at right. all. You were seeing the ends too, though, that even if it, it could open up a whole bunch of different opportunities, but if, if nothing else, that, could, that would empower you to then feel confident and, and empowered to run your own charter company. And then if something else bigger was there, then you could go do that too. Exactly. Okay. So how did you end up, you, you, you went through that program and then the next big thing on the, the resume is McKinsey. So, how, yeah. you know, that's a, so this to is me, a, culturally, that's a big, to me is a big change, but maybe I'm wrong uh, and I'm oversimplifying it. No, no, I, I look, I, I'd be lying to you to say, to say I'd even heard of McKinsey when I started business school, which is huh. funny for a lot of people, and certainly right. for all my colleagues at McKinsey, they would they would laugh at that. But I, it just wasn't on my radar screen. I was, you know, I I, I went to school uh, international business and marketing, mm-hmm. right? So so two passions that I had. I wanted to go back overseas. I, I had I'd lived in London for a while as an undergrad. Uh, uh, I traveled, as I said, during the Marine Corps, um, and and I. I International business was a passion, and and marketing has always been something I've been interested in. So, um, so that that's what I uh, studied, and um, I got involved. There was a, a great, uh, the former dean of the business school and a, and a professor, uh, Paul Magelli, who who passed uh, last year, but um, was was a great guy and uh, took me under his wing, and and he saw something in me. And got me involved in the consulting office, the student consulting office in the business school, and really enjoyed it. And just really took to consulting. Uh, and it was a combination of the, the 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 variety of challenges, so the constant variety of new new problems coming, the gratification of of being able to solve something. Mm-hmm. And then I, I I discovered I really liked client service. Uh, I you know very empathetic. And put myself in the client's shoes very easily, and, and take on their problems. So, so I really liked it, and uh, and I shined. And by the end of my first year of business school, I was um, uh, I was elected the director of the, of the consulting office, and, and you know for for the second year to come back, and and was working with um, uh, with a number of clients, and really enjoyed it. And I went off to Honeywell, to, to in their aviation group, mm. to do a marketing internship, and. Uh, it, it went really well, and they offered me a job, full-time job, coming out of the of the summer. But Paul called me up just as I was wrapping up the internship and said, "Hey, can you go to London for a couple of weeks? Um, hmm. Because uh, there's an opportunity there, and I think you'd really enjoy it." And it was, again, this is all about networking and coincidence, right? But 
um, mixed with a little bit of, of doing a good job for him in the first year. Yeah. But his son was an executive for Lucent uh, in the UK, and this is when 3G was the big thing. Uh-huh. And 3G was coming up, <laughs> the contract was coming up, and they had only, uh, I think, four 3G contracts for the entire country. And um, it was a big competition across, you know, uh, a number of different uh, carriers. Uh-huh. And Lucent UK was one of the ones bidding for it, and, and they needed help. And so I went over there and worked for, for two weeks, basically nonstop. It was a great <laughs> yeah. opportunity, but it was a lot of work. Yeah. And I worked with a McKinsey team there. Ah. Um, and that's when I, re- I knew about, I heard, heard about McKinsey during my first year, but I'd never worked with anyone from there. And McKinsey did not recruit from Illinois, so I never. It was never on my radar. But I worked with them, and I really enjoyed work. I like the people were. That's what stood out. Like mm. these are great, interesting mm-hmm. people. They're nice, and, and they're really smart, and they're really capable. So at the end of that, I came back to uh, to Champaign, started my second year, and um, started looking into it, and and you know found out a, that there's a, a program that McKinsey has that you can submit your resume. And you go into a big pool with lots of people yeah. that are from what they call non-traditional schools, which means second-tier schools uh-huh. in, their, in their vocabulary. And 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 um, it, it it was a little bit longer process because you have to go through a couple more screening rounds to get there. But um, over a course of the next three months, um, I went through uh, you know dozens of interviews, but it was five, I think maybe six rounds of interviews with different folks uh, from the firm. Um, and then was, you know, finally right around Thanksgiving was, uh, was offered, uh, a role here in the Chicago office, which was, which is what I, I would, by that time I had realized is what I wanted. And in fact, oh, wow. wanted it so badly that had, had mailed in my, my, um, uh, my turndown of the Honeywell offer, mm-hmm. which was an astronomical sum of money and a great opportunity. <laughs> and, and I mailed it in. Uh, a week and a half before I got oh wow the the offer from McKinsey just because I knew that I'd never be happy if if I had said yes yeah. to Honeywell and whether or not I got turned down by McKinsey <laughs> and so uh, so I was really happy and and, I, and, and McKinsey remains sort of just uh, uh, an incredible uh, uh, you know place uh, in, in my heart the people there mm-hmm. are fantastic and it was just a fantastic experience so how did because we're we've got to be cognizant of your time here and the time of the space here. I, I, I want to be able to spend a few minutes at least on the Chicago 2016, and then that's led into Chicago Sports Commission work and World Sports Chicago. I, I don't want to miss that because that's specifically about helping these kids from um, you know underprivileged situations, basically, being able to, you know, using sports to help lift them up. How in the heck did this McKinsey guy end up, you know, sitting up at the head table with, with Pat Ryan and, and some of these other guys. Was that, how much is the happenstance we talk about? How much of that was networking? How much of that was you, you know, you had heard it was coming, ding, 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 I'm going to go do it. I'll try to be brief. It's a lot, it's a lot, but I'll try to be <laughs> No, no, it's so, all right. So, so, it's a podcast. So, so, we'll, yeah. we'll make them wait outside. So McKinsey is, you know, I, I think McKinsey is often misunderstood. People are like, oh, it's a business consulting firm. It's a, it's a problem solving factory um, where they take really high energetic, high empathetic, a- a- and smart, and capable people, and they throw them at big problems. And my the example I like to use is on my first engagement at McKinsey. Uh, I started, got shipped down to Memphis, Fortune 500 client, growth uh, growth strategy project, and the the four of us that are on that project. You know my background; I've gone through it pr- pretty non-standard. The second guy was probably pretty. Um, typical uh, of what people would think. He went to Princeton, went to Goldman Sachs after undergrad, went to Harvard Business School, <laughs> went to McKinsey. So, yeah, so that's that, the typical. that guy sort of fits the mold, uh-huh. so to speak. But the third person was a girl. She was a former Hubbard Street dancer, um, had a, a PhD in biopharmacology. Oh, my God. Um, and then uh, the, the fourth person was a, um, uh, a Korean immigrant who, well, he grew up, he, I think he was first-generation American, um, but... Uh, uh, Korean uh, martial artist who had a PhD in engineering uh, was a wicked smart guy, but was also heavily into sports and w- was so into uh, Taekwondo that he had uh, he had his, he had been on his own TV show, a WWE style uh, uh, martial arts show, had his own action doll, which I actually tracked down one of. Oh my god, uh, that's fantastic! Um, and um, 
and it actually uh, w- was one of the guys in the rubber suits in the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. He was doing the special effects. Like, come on, no, swear to God. And, and, this, and so, so this is <laughs> that's fantastic. So this was our team, and I was like, okay, I, I, yeah. I like this place. Yes. And one of the tests, one of, one of the things I realized, you know, years later, as we were doing interviews of people coming in, one of the things that we used to talk about when we we're interviewing someone for the firm is. If you're going to spend three hours on an airport delay sitting next to this person, are they are they going to be interesting to you? And because that doesn't only translate on good team dynamics; it translates on good client dynamics. And so, um, it, it, it was it, it was a great place to work, and it was a great place to be part of. And great opportunities came to us. And one of the opportunities that came was Mayor Daly approaching um, the office manager in Chicago and saying, "Hey, we're thinking about bidding for the Olympic Games." Does it make sense? Will it make money? Um, and do we have a chance? And I had just gotten married about six months earlier. Hmm. Uh, I was looking. I, I, I'd done hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles over a, a five-year period and was looking. I had lived over in Copenhagen, lived in London, was working in Dubai and in China. And I said, you know, it would be great to spend more time at home now. And they knew that. And they saw this opportunity, and they said, "Look, this looks like a four to eight week opportunity. <laughs> do you want to do it?" And, and I said, "Yeah." And so, so a, a small group of us, um, you know, and some of the folks you know, Mark Mitten and Gordon Kane and Patrick mm-hmm. Sandusky and those guys, mm-hmm. uh, along with some folks from McKinsey, um, uh, you know, started on a on a very small project to evaluate the um, the feasibility and the benefits of, of doing it. And that, you know, four week, eight week sort of secret project that we were working on turned into three and a half years of my life because mm-hmm. it just kept expanding. And, um, you know, after after that first month, they said, can you do a couple more months? And after that, uh, Pat Ryan um, and I, you know, started working very closely together. Um, and by the end of the uh, about a year and a half into it, <laughs> um, uh, we won the domestic bid against L.A. Right. And... Um, Pat asked me at that point if I'd come on board. At that point, we were going until that point, I was actually seconded from McKinsey. So I, I'd been working a year and a half, but I was still um, on the McKinsey payroll and, and considered myself part of the firm, even though I hadn't been right. in the office in a year. Um, but then I, I, he asked me to leave and, and, and step in as the chief bid officer uh, of, of the newly formed corporation now that we're moving forward, and, uh, and I accepted. And so, you know, and, and that started what was next to the Marine Corps, the most formative period of my life because that three and a half years of, of working on the bid and working with that those people uh, was just unbelievably uh, uh, unbelievably rewarding, unbelievably educational and 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 just so important to who I am today. Uh, I can't tell you. Well, and, it, and honestly, too, it rings probably very true to me of thinking about it that you talk about you, you wouldn't want to be so structured like the pilot that you're doing the same thing over and over again the same exact procedures every day and all that stuff. Whereas helping run this bid, yes, you were driving towards a goal and it was a common goal with a team, which seems like that's also important to you that, but every day it had to be just something else crazy, right? Of, I mean, just, you know, not to go in the weed, but just everything with all the city departments and, you know, trying to figure out Washington Park or the Heinz site and, and hotels and, new builds and, you know, getting all these disparate different opinions and views on the same page. And that was, to me, I give a lot of credit in the first place to the mayor and, and those around him of, you know, tapping a McKinsey versus saying, well, I want to do this. Tell me how we do it. It's, well, should we do this? Does this make sense? And then how should we do it? And then going and attacking it and then being smart enough to bring in great very smart businessmen and people with to bring the dollars in the Patrick Ryan's of the world and getting the business community on board. I mean, that's what set it up for success. And then it was, it was very interesting. I didn't sit in on, you know, a, a, a one, one thousandth of the, you know, meetings, probably even one, one millionth of the times in the meetings. But the ones that I sat in was coming from an agency type or even a brand type perspective was it was very refreshing that had somebody with the that had some of the rigor from consulting thought process 
to put it in, you know, well, here's the filters we're going to put on to make sure that we can understand what are we going to do? What are we not going to do? How are we going to judge success? How are we not going to, how are we going to prioritize items of taking that perspective of it and melding that with all the creative people in the room was fantastic. And I, you know, everybody knows what happened when they didn't win the bid and it's, it's total BS and rigged and <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not going to draw you and I'm going to no, say no, what it's you're okay. thinking, but it, it, it's okay. like, I don't know how I, like, I'm not over it. And I, like I said, it was so uh, such a minuscule part of my time and yeah. passion into it that to for you to look at it as this opportunity then from there is fascinating to me. Of, I, I like, took, you know, I, I took, I, I, I told someone this a while ago, I, I, the first year I was keeping track and I was, I was, I was waiting for the day. No one asked me and it went over a year. I went, I went Every over, single day, I literally was, went over a year oh without without going a day without someone asking me like, "Oh, what happened? How did how do you feel? How did it happen?" And so it was a it was a wound that's that not funny. Like that, the, the, the band aid was pulled off every, every day. day. You know? And so so um, and and it was funny because oh. you know and Pat Ryan and I would get together and have breakfast, um, you know, every every couple of months and. And it was the same conversation, and it, and it was—I think it was—it was a—it was, was a really poor support group we had in the, in the mid because all of us were sort of we're coming back, we were reliving it every time. And I think we all needed yeah. to get some distance. But yeah. but I wrote, you know, I, I wrote a blog post on LinkedIn uh, on the five-year anniversary of the uh, of the bid, and I talked about the legacy, and 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 it's a legacy in people, uh, and it's a legacy in organizations, and it's a legacy in accomplishments. But it is way deeper than people realize, and and it'll never be truly. Um, uh, recorded because it's not it, it's not beneficial to everyone to have it recorded everything that went in, went into it and everything that came out of it but you can tie a direct a, a, a direct bright line between the Olympic bid and the effort that we did to, you know that, that we undertook and the way the city uh, came together to the Chicago Sports Commission mm, absolutely to UI Labs which I don't think most people think about um, and w- which which I know uh, w- would have a lot less chances of existing if it wasn't for the bid and some of the ideas that came out of the post-bid discussions. Um, you, you look at someone like Kurt Summers, who's a city treasurer, who, um, you know, I, I had known Kurt. He, Kurt was at McKinsey, um, uh, and I had known Kurt uh, years before. And bringing, you know, having him come in and help us with the community strategy you were talking about and the touch points and all that, and, and, and you know, that was a direct um, line to uh, to him getting involved, you know, then running Pat Ryan's insurance business after the bid and then going to work for Tony Preckwinkle as her chief of staff and then, um, you know, me helping on the transition with with that and some of the things that we put in place to, to, to cut the budget led to, you know, uh, the the same Accenture team that volunteered for the, for the Preckwinkle uh, uh, transition to helping with Mayor Emanuel's transition and some of the ideas, including UI Labs that were thrown on the table. I mean, all those things. You look at the people like J.B. Pritzker and, 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 and Matt Moog and, and Kevin Willer and Jim O'Connor, all heavily involved in the bid and, and, and the, the great things that they've done with 1871 and, and, trying, to, and trying to push Chicago as a decision. Everyone's intent with the Olympic bid was the same. It was we want Chicago to be recognized for what a great city it is, what a global destination it should be, and, and, and to take its place amongst the great international cities of the world. That's what all of us had in our heart, and that's what we wanted to, to that's what we hoped would come out of the bid. And so when you see all these things that might not seem directly connected that have happened since the bid ended, um, what you see is a lot of people that had that passion fueled for that mission that have continued on that mission to this day, including myself. And, right. you know, the, the Sports Commission, you know, when I founded the Sports Commission with Don Welsh from True Chicago in 2011, it was a direct result of the Olympic bid. I mean, right. literally, our conversation started with, let's talk about what we learned about our international image from the market research we did during the Olympic bid. Let's talk about the fact that Chicago doesn't recruit sport events to, its, to the city in any right. active way. And let's talk about the benefits of doing that for our international and domestic image and our tourism. And, hey, let's start one. You know, and then look and look what we've accomplished. And, and by the way, Kara Bachman, who right, who worked for us on the bid, deeply on the right? bid too. Yeah, and, and 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 it was because of that relationship and, and knowing her from the bid 
that I recommended her for the sports commission in the first place, right? right? And then, and, and then through her hard work and skill and dedication, and 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 capabilities, she's ri- you know now risen up to be the executive director there and doing a phenomenal job. But right. you look at what that organization has accomplished in six years and the, the economic impact it's had for the city. All of these things happen because of the bid. And by the way, zero taxpayer dollars. It was all privately funded by you know the Pat Ryan's, Andy McKenna's um, of the world stepping up and, and putting their money on the line and saying we want to do this because we, we believe in, in mm-hmm. our city and we want to do great things. I, I, that's the kind of thing that, that makes me proud to be a Chicagoan. It makes me proud to continue to work towards those goals. That helps crystallize it some for me too of the whole uplifting. I mean, there's definitely so many elements that I don't think people put those pieces together. Even some of the people who are involved with it, but you know, the NFL draft exercise, I think became, not to ever say it was really easy, but definitely much easier because you had gone through some of these problems. Like, how do we pull all this stuff together? How do we market ourselves? What's the way that we can make this work financially? What's the way that this is good for our brand? And I think people, all the people who pulled together and thought, yeah, we should get the Olympics. And when we didn't, well, we should have gotten them, not because we weren't capable of it, because of some other BS, but instead of it going, oh, woe is me, it was like, all right, well, screw them. And we're moving forward on this thing and taking it as a positive, which, you know, Lord knows these days it can spiral off into something negative very quickly. So it's, it's good to take the positive route. And then like the World Sports Chicago, that that was the literally spun off yeah, right, I, from I, I 2016. Sort of, I, I left that out unintentionally, but I mean, World Sports Chicago is, is the most obvious um, legacy of the bid because it was... It was the the, the, the the literal legacy of the bid. You know, the, the remaining funds. Uh, it was formed as part of the, as part of the bid effort, um, and and it, the plan was always that whether we were to host the games or not host the games, it would live on as a as a legacy organization um, at least until another games came to the U.S. Um, and and so the the whole goal there was to really address the economic disparity and social impact that's needed in Chicago's youth with with the Olympic Games. And, and that, that was really what it came down to because at the end of the day, if you think about it, the Olympics would have left an incredible legacy for the, um, for the youth of Chicago to inspire them to yep. do something different, right? And, and, so, and we saw that. And World Sports Chicago was created to really maximize that impact. Yep. And World Sports Chicago was created to maximize that impact. And when the bid ended, you know, we said World Sports Chicago should be about continuing to find ways to to have social impact through sport right. in Chicago. The Sports Commission was a dovetail to that, and it was how do we have financial and fiscal impact, economic impact through sport for Chicago? And so it was always meant right. to well, complement the, the Sports the, Commission. I mean, uh, World Sports Commission. You know, the growth of other some other things, too, have helped. I think, like, the marathon and that exposure nationally and internationally. But the bid process opening some people's eyes are like, why do you need a sports commission here? We've already got all these pro teams and all this. And for them, no, no, look, like, did you, you know, the Olympic sports, the, all that stuff that you do, you bring fencing championships or wrestling or amateur basketball and all these things. It's great to expose those people to our great city of Chicago. And on top of it, here's the numbers that's, look at this economic impact of just I one mean, of these, just oh, look at it. I, I, silly I think, little tournament. No, 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 no. Look at how many kids are coming, how many parents are coming, how many room nights are sold, yeah. how many, you know, dinners. You, that, think that, about, that. you think about international triathlon, NFL draft, international rugby. We've had the New Zealand all yeah. there twice. Selling out yes. Soldier Field. The largest crowds they've ever drawn in the United yeah. States. Right. NCAA Frozen Four, mm-hmm. the gymnastics, the basketball, the Labor Cup, now coming here next year, the Ryder Cup of tennis, you know, coming to Chicago, America's Cup racing yep. in Monroe Harbor. I mean, think it, it blew people's minds. Yes. The, the America's I mean, Cup part, like this is, they wouldn't have thought of that otherwise to no, get that exposure. And, and all of that, all of that, go, ties back to, to the sports commission. And I think everybody in this in the city, whether they're on the on the city side or the, or the professional te- sports team side, would tell you that the credit for that goes to the sports commission. They've done a fantastic job yeah. Yeah. at at driving um, uh, those events and, and tracking them down and, and putting together bids and bringing together all the parties that need to be in place to make it work. And all that came out of, you know, an infrastructure that was built up, relationships that were built up during the bid. What's the the uh, best way for people to find out some more about World Sports Chicago? I'm assuming there's a good website to direct people to, or and I'll put this link in the podcast description for folks too, but where should yeah, we send so, them? So World Sports Chicago is at uh, worldsportschicago.org. Okay. And um, uh, Cam Buckner, uh, the executive director there, uh, is doing a fantastic job of 
um, making sure that impact you know continues to flow down to these kids uh, across the city we have programs with cps cps um, uh, with the parks uh, as well as with a, a large number of of neighborhood organizations that are really making a real difference right. uh, for these kids, and that's fantastic. I mean, that's I think that's the, probably the simplest way to put it is these are the those leftover dollars and and brain power of the people involved is now going into the communities that need this that are giving kids this goes full circle for you kids like you that may not have even ever had the chance the exposure, and it's not necessarily any one sport in particular. But a sport, some activity, something healthy other than idle time, like you said, yeah. which is terrible. And and there's a coach or a teacher or somebody who can take some has, you know take some interest in them. And it's not to find the next you know Michael Jordan, LeBron James. That would be great. But it's more you find whatever their inner skill is and bring that out of them. And it's it's fabulous the impact that just even one on one that can have. And you're reaching hundreds and thousands of kids over the course of the year. So. Exactly. It's, just, it, 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 it's a great mission. And, it, and, and the thing about World Sports Chicago is it's not, it, it's not about the, what it does itself. It's about bringing, liaising with the other groups that are out there helping and making it possible for them to, to, to be more effective. So it's not just about direct programs, but also about acting as a mentor and a counselor to some of these organizations that are really well-meaning but don't have maybe the, the, the availability of, of board resources, money, or to mentorship that they need to be successful. Well, John, it's, uh, we, we ran way over on time, but I think it was nothing but f- some really good, fascinating stuff to talk about and share with folks. So I, I really appreciate it uh, having you join me today. I really appreciate you sharing your story and talking a little bit more about yourself and uh, Arena Partners and the work around 2016. Thanks for being here. Can I talk about one more thing? Yeah, yeah, go. Because there's something else I wanted to say. Yes, I should have so, said that. No, Let's no, keep okay, going. It's okay. So, um, psych. So, <laughs> so about six months ago, I started uh, a client project, which has been one of the most rewarding client projects uh, that I've, that I've, that we've done at Rena Partners. Um, we're working with Special Olympics um, on Special Olympics 50th anniversary. So a lot of folks don't realize that um, Special Olympics was actually started right here yep. in Chicago. Uh, the birthplace was Soldier Field, and July 20th, 1968. And next July 20th, uh, we'll be dedicating an Eternal Flame monument and sculpture right at that north entrance of Soldier Field. Oh, across very the cool. F- the the uh, Field Museum is going to be a fantastic. Just uh, just got a sneak peek at the renderings uh, this week, and it's just going to be incredible. Uh, a, a monument, Eternal Flame monument, to uh, to Special Olympics. But that's not all. There's there, there's 24 teams coming in from around the world for a unified cup, um, uh, a soccer match. Uh, important uh, to to call out unified, right? So, um, Special Olympics is an organization that helps individuals with intellectual disabilities, and that, that could be a genetic uh, defect, could be um, an injury, but it's a pretty broad spectrum, and there's mm-hmm. 200 million. Uh, individuals yeah. around the world who suffer from ID uh, each year. And Special Olympics has grown from this really small thousand-person uh, event that happened uh, under Ann Burke's tutelage in, in Soldier Field uh, in 1968 to become a global organization, 172 countries, 5 million athletes a year. And I think it's important that you know 5 million is only 2 to 3% of that global population oh, with right. ID. So there's a lot of room to grow in spite of all the programs that are, that are going on. And, and, and in, in their 50th year, they're really looking forward to all the things they can do to, um, to address the needs of individuals. And, it, and it, it, it's, it's got sport at its heart, obviously, um, uh, uh, and, and that, that's appealing to me. But it's also um, uh, got a real health-oriented mission. Special Olympics is the, the largest healthcare provider for individuals with ID globally. Is it so, really? Yeah. So they do screenings, and they do a lot of times. A lot of times, these kids and adults, these, these individuals with ID, don't have any access to medical care if it wasn't for the event. So they choose, they use the events to do more than just uh, sport activities. It's screenings, it's it's healthcare awareness, it's training, and it's medical care. And and and, um, and, and it's an incredible, uh, it's been an incredibly rewarding thing. And and, and we're you know it's we're going to be working on it for the next. Uh, nine months, so we're, we're, we're really in the thick of it right now and planning all the activities, uh, including a major concert celebration out at um, uh, Northerly Island and a, uh, a Global Day of Inclusion uh, festival at Soldier Field on, on July 21st next year. Um, 
going to be lots of opportunities, uh, and, and it's going to shine a global light on Chicago. So ESPN is going to be broadcasting all the events and, uh, uh, and the ABC affiliates as well. And so it'll be a really incredible um, opportunity to showcase the city, uh, showcase this great nonprofit organization, um, and to showcase the athletes. Uh, and and t- to me, it, it really epitomizes what you know we do and what I started yeah. in the partners to do, right? So, so yes, they're a client, um, uh, but they're a client I care deeply about, and they're a client that you know, everyone on my team is working 110% every day uh-huh. to, uh, to address their needs and, 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 and make sure that everything comes off as successful. And, and, and that really, you know, th- th- I guess that's another legacy, right? It's a legacy of, of, of the, the, the importance that we all place on uh, this city, uh, uh, cementing its place in history, making it a better place, and taking care of the organizations that are doing good things here. Now, now we're ending. Uh, that that's awesome. And it, I guess though, before we do, is if people are interested in supporting the event coming up, is it just kind of keep in touch with gettingthearena.com through that website, through a Special Olympics site, or uh, you know, what's the best way if folks want to want to so get involved? We've set up we've set up a, a special website, specialolympics50.org. Uh, which is a microsite that has information about all the activities going on around the 50th, a little bit of information about the history, um, but also, uh, importantly, uh, you could sign up there to get more information, to volunteer, guest and family programs, and tickets. Awesome. All right. Well, this is great stuff. I really enjoyed it, and uh, appreciate you carving out this much time to sit down and chat today, John. Thanks, and uh, have a good rest of your day, my man. Thanks, Chris. You too. I, I love that story. Love listening to John break down uh, the talk a lot about professional careers, not taking a traditional path. Uh, that's uh, certainly exhibit A of a non-traditional path. Love John's stories and advice, uh, learning things, a lot of this stuff firsthand. You can check the pod description for links to John's arena work, uh, the arena partner site. World for Chicago site and the uh, interesting stuff that they're going to have going on for Special Olympics 50th. Those are all in the pod description. Also on your to-do list, rate, review, and subscribe to these painless podcasts and head back and see all the other 34 previous guests. We talked today a little bit about Kara Bachman from the Sports Commission, Gordon Kane, who's at Ascendant Sports. There's also some great stuff from John Lewicki at McDonald's, uh, David Ladd at Stats. 35 total guests. Please check them out and really appreciate any reviews uh, and ratings as well. Second thing is get to painless.network and join us today. Just create and complete a free profile on our brand new website that is painless and enjoy all the benefits. And finally, number three, head to the website and check out events because you're going to see our early December event information and get yourself RSVP'd for that. All right. Way too much talking from my end. I'll get out of your ears. Until next time, it's Chris Hartwig saying... Stay connected, friends.